Yet, if you want to fight, you also have to know. Whoever wants to change the existing bad conditions must also know where they come from and how they can be abolished, and we must be capable of imagining different, better conditions. You have to have a goal. In this way, the proletarian youth movement also wants to be an educational movement. Each of us should become speakers and agitators for our own movement. Only the one who has inner fortitude will be able to go their own way, upright and unwavering. Only the person who knows queerly and unerringly what they want. This, more than anything, summarises what political education is. It is not peripheral, it is not an added extra. It is utterly necessary for our movement to win. Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about labour history and trade union issues. This is episode 16. Hi everyone, welcome back. Um, I'm Daniel, joined as usual by Ellie and Ed with our producer Liam. Um, There's been something of a hiatus uh, since our last episode, so thank you for uh, bearing patiently with us in um, what must have been a a terrible silent wilderness for you all. Um, Normal service is resumed today. Um, The quote that you heard was uh, Rita Vacasse, who's a Labour Party activist and editor of Clarion magazine and a scholar of the German Social Democratic Movement, reading a quote from a German socialist newspaper from the turn of the century in a panel at the World Transformed, which is a fringe festival at Labour Party conference organised by Momentum, where we uh, as Labour Days were uh, very happy to co-host and co-facilitate a panel there on the subject of political education in the Labour movement, which is the focus of today's episode. And to give us a slightly more expansive intro into some of what we're going to be talking about today, here's Ed. Yeah, so... um... As, as, as well as reader in that session, um, one of the other contributors was uh, Colin Moore, who is a, a sort of scholar of uh, the Labour College's movement and its predecessors in, in this country and, and trade union education more generally. And we're going to hear from uh, Colin's contribution to that session in, in a bit. But um, Colin's uh, pamphlet about a, a fantastically named organisation called the Plebs League, um, which was published a few years ago, kind of kick-started or restarted a discussion in the trade union movement in this country about what should trade union education be like not just in terms of the content of sort of trade union education courses although that's obviously important but also like what type of education in terms of the the teaching and learning the sort of pedagogical techniques that are used who sort of has control and ownership over over the education and probably most importantly f- for us to what political ends is that mm. is that trade union education directed so we're going to get into a bit of a deeper discussion about that sort of later on and sort of bring things up to date uh, but first we're going to hear Colin's contribution which is a kind of a bit of a historical overview of the of, of the debates that have happened in the past so before we go into Colin's bit we'd just like to say that this has actually been uh, recorded at a live session at the world transformed and we are aware that the audio quality is is really not very good uh, but still we hope that you can get something from it and we hope that you realize the kind of the content of what is being said is second to none so here we we're, go. we're all about substance over style here at labor day so put the terrible audio quality to one side and focus on the uh, the good news. Okay, I'm talking about the Clubs League. I'm talking in, in, after the Chartist movement was defeated more or less um, completely in 
say, let's say 1848. Uh, the idea developed amongst um, a group of upper-class Christian socialists that they could use adult education to forestall any movement like that arising from below in future. Um, so one of the uh, consequences of them deciding to do that was the university extension movement. So from in the 1870s, uh, starting with Cambridge, Cambridge, Oxford and London universities used to send speakers round across the country to give one-off uh, quite spectacular sort of lectures to what they hoped would be working class audiences and uh, they hoped that by that means they could create a compliant layer amongst working class people who would otherwise be activists. Right, so, but however, by 1900, although some working class people did attend those things, it was clear that it wasn't fulfilling that function that they hoped for it. Alright, so one got to understand that around 1900, that was the point where socialist ideas were gaining very strong support amongst working class activists. And the, the period also when workers would go without a meal in order to be able to buy a book or to read a book, you know, and risk the sack, you know, reading it at work. So there was a very high level of motivation amongst the least ascetic people. I'm going to show you something now about the origins of Ruskin College in Oxford. Um, Ruskin College was founded, um, it was based on the ideas of the former university lecturer and art critic John Ruskin, but it was founded by three people from the United States. Um, uh, Walter Vrooman, Charles Beard and Annie Vrooman, the wife of who put up the money for it. And they were trying to create a working class education, adult education movement here in England. They set up Ruskin halls across the country, but in the end, the only one that survived was Ruskin College in Oxford, and that was not, that was there, but not at the university. They appointed as a principal of that college a man called Dennis Hurd, who was a fairly high profile socialist who was a member of the Social Democratic Federation. In the early years of Ruskin, there were students for, from a variety of backgrounds, but very quickly it came to be a college where nearly all of the 50 or so students were sponsored by their trade union, trade union branches. And, um, after the Americans who had found it, found it, it went back to the States in 1902. It was in long-term financial difficulty. Um, I need to say something now about the founding of the Workers' Education Association and the man who founded it, Albert Mansbridge. Okay, so um, in the late 1890s, Mansbridge offered the, the university extension movement a kind of solution to the problem of the fact that they're activities were not employing working class audiences. He himself was a working class person who was a product of the extension movement and of the cooperative movement, but he was also an ardent convert to Anglo-Catholicism. He was not a socialist and he liked to mingle with the bishops and other class people who were involved in the university extension movement. Um, and especially with the ones from Oxford who were involved in their organisation, which was called the Oxford Extension Delegacy. Mansbridge had his, had, Mansbridge's big idea was that instead of sending lecturers around to give one-off lectures, um, you, what they would do is set up a system of tutorial classes. That's to say they would get groups of 30 or so working class activists to participate in a, in a structured class over three years in which they would do written work 
and, uh, and um, that, that would lead towards a diploma in economics and possibly to entry eventually to a diploma in economics at the University of Oxford itself for the ones that were picked out. Okay, so that was, his, that was what Mainbridge's scheme was. Um, he believed that that would produce the kind of layer of activists who were kind of compliant and reformist kind of people in the way that was wanted. And the Oxford Extent University Extension University eager, eagerly embraced that idea. And one of its adherents, who happened to be Sir Robert Moran, the Chief Civil Servant of the Board of Education, wrote it into local authorities' powers that they could, if they wished, support those classes financially. In the University of Oxford, there was a group of left-wing, upper-class, socialist Oxford tutors who align themselves with the approach of the tutorial classes that Manfred has suggested. Among those two, that group of tutors include William Temple, a future Archbishop of Canterbury, and the histo famous histo later famous historian R.A. Corney. Uh, and they formed this group, which they gave to a semi-humorous language called the Catalan Club. And they, they, what they were trying to do was convince the more reactionary people in the university world that it was a good idea to support Manfred's ideas. We had a situation where there was a rising level of militancy at that time, and it was a, that solution there, the need to find a solution like that was more and more important to the ruling class. And um, obviously, that, if that was going to work, they needed an institution in Oxford that would be a kind of point of exchange between the classes that were organised amongst adults across the country and the actual entry to Oxford University. So they therefore had their eye on Rusty College which already existed as a possible place through which that could be done. There are certain ideas which is need, we need to just know about uh, that were becoming influential among working class activists of this period. Uh, and that there was a rapid growth of working class self-organisation and there were four different kind of forms of unionism that hadn't existed before were coming into existence, especially industrial union, industrial unionism that was replacing craft unionism. Okay, so none of all grade unions rather than more elite unions of craft workers. Uh, when the Liberal government came to power in 1906, it gave a number of mainstream trade union leaders jobs supervising the welfare reforms that it introduced. And that then in turn reduced criticism amongst the, the active working class on the grounds that those people were kind of selling out and misleading. And that was further strengthened by the performance of the 37 MPs who were elected as Labour Party MPs in 1906 for the first time under the banner of the Labour Party. Right, so in that situation then, ideas that came from a socialist in the United States, Daniel de Leon, who was an academic actually, became quite influential. And in Scotland there was a group supporting his ideas called the Socialist Labour Party and they produced a pamphlet of two speeches that he had given called Two Pages from Roman History. Now that was a report of these two talks. In one of those he drew a parallel that in ancient Rome the plebs, the, the poor people in ancient Rome, having been drawn from the city, were attracted back in by a system of tribunes of the people who would supposedly represent them but actually betrayed them. And so the, the analogy was, you know, in the present day, what was happening on the part of the kind of trade union and so forth at the time that he was talking about. In this country, because of the nature of the class settlement in this country, Oxford, the university like Oxford and Cambridge did not at that time produce a layer like that. It produced kind of a, a clergy or civil servants or colonial administrators rather than 
So, so if that, if that, if that, we're looking past activists who wanted to be students of socialist ideas, how to do that for themselves. They had to understand, get hold of text and read and understand for themselves. A lot of the texts that we know of now are also not yet being translated. Uh, in 1907, finally, after years and years of rank and file lobbying, the TUC agreed to, uh, to try to get finance from the whole of the union movement to support Rustin College. So that created a, a kind of crisis situation in the following way that um, it meant that the extension movement, the university extension movement that was trying to take control of Russell, or thinking of taking control of Russian College, knew that they had to do it quickly because there was the chance that Russian College would become viable as a Labour College. WEA used to hold its annual concerts in Oxford at the same time as the Oxford Extension Delegacy in the summer. It used to hold a large meeting. And um, at this point, at that point, the Workers' Education Association had not held any classes, not actually run any classes at its own. But from uh, January 1908, two classes were started, one in Longton in Staffordshire in the Potteries, and one in the Northwest. And these were taught by R.H. Tawney, the historic, later historian, who I mentioned to you. And so that showed that their, their approach, Mansbridge's approach, the tutorial approach, could begin to work because those classes were joining working class people. Uh, there were 50 or so students at Ruskin College at this time. There were mostly mine workers from the South Wales Miners Federation and railway workers from, um, from across the country, but there were also some other people who we can talk about. They had their own model, from below model of education, which they called independent working class education. They were fiercely opposed to the WEA and Workers' Education Association extension model. They regarded that as, orthodox, they called that orthodox education, and they regarded it as enslaving people and brainwashing them in upper class ideas. Uh, they thought that the content about our education for working class people, especially activists, should include three things. Marxist economics as they understood it then. Industrial history, that means the history of the world without the working class being left out. And philosophy, that means making it possible for working class people to elaborate their own ideas for us. So they also had a highly participatory teaching method in which um, a, a, a text would be read around the class and everybody would read out and eventually they would keep discussing it and discussing it until people understood it and then they would go out and speak in public and then come back and, and review what had happened. So um, the Oxford Extension Delegacy of WEA now began to try to take over Ruskin College and the management of Oxford University began to intervene in the situation. Um, they appointed members of their own staff to be governors there. They restructured the executive of Ruskin College, so the authority of the principal, Dennis Hurd, who I've mentioned to you, was undermined. Compulsory exams were introduced to decide which students could progress to the second year. Um, they banned the principal, Dennis Hurd, from teaching sociology. It was the only place in Oxford in which that was any kind of sociology was taught at that time. Uh, the students were banned from public speaking, and you had to understand those students were there were some of the most militant people in the country. They were people who in two years' time had been leading the campaign combine strike you know, in South Wales, some of them. So, banning them from public speaking, you know, they used to speak in Oxford at the Marcus Memorial, you know, they sometimes had to typically fight against students, to, to the Oxford students to do it. And also, all lectures were made compulsory. So, alongside these changes, they also began to butter the students up. So they began to invite them to tea with other people, and the, the, um, 
Chancellor of the University uh, came to visit him there and there was a stand-up argument between him and the principal Dennis Hurd about the future of Russian college. Should it be to do with the Labour movement, moving closer to the Labour movement, being the Labour college, or should it be follow the mainstream sort of idea? Also then, the vice, one of the vice, the vice principal that had been closed, a man called Buxton, wrote an article in which he described Russian college as an idealist experiment in fight and wrong relief. That means that you find that the students were the dregs of British imperial society, basically. So the students mobilised against this. In October 1908, they formed the League of the Players, which we're talking about. That was a reference to Daniel de Leon's pamphlet that I've mentioned. Uh, they produced a pamphlet called The Burman Question of Education, uh, and they set up local classes in the working class heartland in which they come, which is in the northeast. South Wales and the Northwest and a number of other places. So they were running their own classes also within Russian College. And they produced a launched magazine called the Fleps magazine. Uh, in March 1909, Russian College, the newly imposed management, sacked the principal, Dennis Hurd, on the grounds that he was not maintaining discipline. He, he was the only one who was capable of uh, communicating with the students, but they sacked him. Then he told the students about that at the end of March, all the students agreed to go on strike as they understood it, the boycott of all the other lecturers except his, um, in support of him to defend his job. And so that was the famous Ruskin College strike. That achieved a great deal of publicity because nobody in the mainstream could believe that people like mine workers and railway workers would take on the, the poshest university on the face of the earth over a matter of education in the way that they did. So uh, basically, uh, I'll just quickly say then to conclude that they, in the middle of the strike, they decided that they couldn't win them in Russia, so they, they left. They formed their own organisation called the Central Labour College and the Pledge League, and it eventually became, as, as it said, the National Council of Labour Colleges, and it became a publishing house. It continued until 1964 when the TUC set it down. So, whether from below, were, it, it's an almost unique case as far as I know in world history of working class people like my work in the railway workers creating their own. Um, coherent system of adult education. So I'm sorry to run over, but thank you very much. So you heard there a presentation from Colin Waugh, um, a uh, labour movement activist, socialist and historian of uh, working class and labour movement education, speaking to a panel that Labour Day's co-hosted at the World Transformed Festival um, at the fringe of Labour Party conference. Um, we're just going to talk a little bit now about some of the content of what um, Colin said before we move into the next bit of our episode. So, um, Ed, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's an interesting, it's a really interesting period, um, generally, for sort of trade union history and the development of modern trade unions. I think the interesting thing about Ruskin and the kind of student strike at Ruskin that Collins was talking about and that his pamphlet's about is that the... The guys that were at Ruskin and they were, they were all blokes at that at that time. They they come they come directly out of organised labour because they wanted to learn how to improve the lot of organised labour, and they wanted to then go back with those ideas to the places that they come from and sort of arm the movement with those ideas. So it wasn't like a kind of. I'm toddling off to Ruskin now. See you later. Yeah. I'm gonna then. I'm gonna go to university and I'm gonna yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of join the ranks of the middle class. It was a very conscious rejection of that sort of that sort of trajectory. Yeah, a kind of rise with your class, not out of it. Yeah. Type of attitude. And I think I think if if any of our listeners have had any engagement with 
the union learning agenda as it exists today is a you know is a real sort of anemic um, pale facsimile of this kind of stuff. Um, and could, I, could could you just kind of expand on the sort of uh, like when you say the union learning sure, agenda so, as it is now? So um, the there's a kind of official union learning infrastructure, which I'm loath to be like too critical about, to be honest, because union learner reps right across all sorts of different sectors of the economy do a lot of really valuable work and and, and do some really important stuff with, with those resources. But um, the kind of official union learning infrastructure is a um, government-sponsored uh, scheme, effectively, to... Um, give facilities to elected union learner reps um, in workplaces and, and their role is to sort of help um, union members access sort of skills training formal education yeah and, you know and it might be it might mainstream be, education yeah it might be yeah. courses at a local college or stuff that the union might run itself or or a bit of both and a lot of the time it's around yeah kind of sort of formal technical skills maybe an IT course or a language course and that sort of stuff again I don't want to be too critical of it because it is really important and union learner reps do a lot of good stuff but often the kind of presentation of it is just learn this skill so you can kind of make your life better which I suppose there's nothing wrong with on its own terms but if you kind of look look back and read that against where the people Collins talking about were coming from the people who, who ran the plebs league they had a they had a much more sort of expansive and ambitious and radical conception of what worker education was for that it was about you know we, we want to in, enrich ourselves culturally intellectually and politically to to um, empower our movement to change yeah, society, to change society yeah, yeah. and i think that's reflected in the way that we went about publishing uh, materials and also like sourcing materials for the movement. So. Liam McNulty coming out <laughs> from behind the mic. If you're wondering, you're wondering who this this dulcet toned man is. This is our this is our producer Liam, who we've who we've unchained from his uh, production desk and allowed to uh, make a, a one time contribution to this. But carry on, Liam. Please continue. Yeah. So Colin mentioned Daniel De Leon. He was obviously the leader of the Socialist Labour Party, and he set up the New York Labour News Company. Um, in the early 20th century and the reason why people like Noah Ablett and the people who went to Ruskin and the people who set up the Plebs League had that Marxist education is that the the Delianites imported vast quantities of very cheap, very good translations of uh, Marx, Engels, Kautsky of these people. Those pamphlets were in the South Wales coldfields, those pamphlets were in London, those pamphlets were in Glasgow, workers had access to them. Um, Another publishing company at the time, the Charles H. Kerr Company, uh, would do the, the, the little the, the pocket red books of um, kind of second international classics which are very affordable for like average workers mm. they would buy into the company uh, and get uh, a number of like free or cheap pamphlets every month and that provided a real political education for people yeah. and it was a real kind of infrastructure which aided the movement provided these materials so that people could learn for themselves they could run reading groups they could set up meetings they could have access to you know a whole world of um, European and American uh, socialist material yeah and a a real sort of culture of like self-education like have a reading group you know discuss what you've read sort of thing and even to be honest I think the plebs league is probably one of the best named left-wing (laughs) organizations of all time that has ever existed but and it's it's kind of funny that oh ple- like plebs that's a bit of a funny thing to call yourselves. But it was a ve- it was like a very very conscious choice to call yeah, themselves absolutely. That, yeah. because they were saying we are working class people. We don't have 
like sort of narrow uh, what what you people would say these days aspirations so they call yeah. like better off on an on an individual basis we're working like for the for our whole class mm. and that's what that's what we see our education as, as being so i think yeah i mean like daniel on what you were saying um as much as uh, i agree with you 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 wouldn't want to criticize it too much at least it exists i think you're right in pointing out that it completely sort of i guess misses the point that i would see the point of education has been much more of a transformative mm. wholly transformative yeah. thing about about who you are and who the people around you are and all, and um yeah and it's something to do with cultural enrichment it's to do with broadening your understanding of of, of the world and the universe but i think it, it's interesting that yes they've lost that in the trade union movement but we have lost that everywhere we've lost that in universities we've lost that in institutions um i mean even when i was in university we were the discussion was about us being customers mm, they were service yeah. providers we mm. were customers we bought this this service off them yeah. and, and that, that's not what education is about and it's sort and of it's... entering the job market yeah. once, you, once you've got the degree with the right skills to do yeah. so and stuff like that yeah and, and and i think the the sort of the state of trade union education is a, is entirely like it's it's inextricably linked with like the, the sort of crisis of education mm -hmm. generally in, across society i think that's absolutely right um, and I, I think, yeah, I, th I think a lot of it is like, a lot of it is like as well because the general decline of the trade union movement um, that has necessitated necessitated a sort of ch change in trade or a narrowing in trade union education. Mm -hmm. and, and like Daniel mentioned that like a lot of it is like government funded. And of course the government isn't going to fund trade unions to teach people about like Marxist political economy. Yeah. You know, they are they are going to fund unions to teach people about like developing skill sets for yeah, the workplace yeah. and stuff like that. You know, so it so it is all it's all in, linked with the wider question of education and how it works and what it's for. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, sh it should also be pointed out, and we we might get into looking at the kind of contemporary terrain a little bit more later. But you know, it it is it is uneven, and there are th there's quite a lot of really good stuff going on in contemporary trade union education. My union. RMT has a dedicated education centre up in Doncaster where Ed, in fact, has been with Colin Moore to deliver a course about, a, class. A, a, yeah, about, about class and yeah. about some of this, this kind of stuff mm. to RMT reps and activists that was funded and facilitated by my union's education department. Um, and and there is stuff like that going on in kind of pockets yeah. around, around bits of the labour movement. But I think on the whole, it is undeniable, really, that the horizons have radically narrowed. But I think it is turning that corner again. Because like I mentioned, I think Co Colin's pamphlet was one of the contributing factors to like kicking this discussion mm -hmm. off a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think more and more people in the trade union movement, including people in the sort of machinery of the movement as well, that we often kind of slag off a bit in this podcast but there has there has been a shift in the last few years i think people are starting to question like again just like the ruskin college students did like what what is working class education for what is it about and to sort of box off the story of the ruskin college i mean we'll we're going to talk about ruskin again a bit later in, in terms of what it's like these days and, and how it's panned out but the Ruskin College students did develop an entire like national movement, mm. the Labour Colleges movement, out of that, out of the Ruskin College strike and, and all the rest of it, and that lasted for decades and it enrolled like tens of thousands of mm. trade unionists on its courses. And it didn't, it didn't just teach like 
political stuff actually it did it did offer what wider like yeah g- general education courses as well but the focus was very much like what is what is the sort of armory of ideas that you need as a trade unionist and that's again is the that's what the discussion i think is circling round to again today mm. is like what what do we actually need to know to sort of understand the world like like ellie was saying understand the world around us and our place in it and and therefore mm. the next step how how do we change it yeah and I, th- I think i think there's a, that that discussion is also taking place in the labor party and in bits of momentum and you know although the kind of upsurge and developments that are going on on the left of politics are sort of uneven and contradictory in some ways that that discussion's that well i mean the fact that you you were asked to we we you know this podcast represented in the person of ed mustill was asked <laughs> to uh, co-facilitate a panel about this topic at the world transformed i think is um evidence uh, that what ed says is true that, that, that there are the, the kind of seeds of this debate started yeah, to... i mean there's a whole stream of sessions at the world transformed about political education mm. that was kicked off by john mcdonald no less so it is something that even right from the top of the movement is, is now being talked about which which can only be a good thing obviously Okay, so um, to tell us about another type of trade union education and working class education, but this time from America, is Daniel Randall. Yeah, I'm still personally reeling from the shock of hearing Liam McNulty's voice. <laughs> what, what I'm now afraid of is that he's going to get loads of he's fan gonna get, He's definitely going to get loads of fan Everyone's going to be like, why don't you get rid of the three dickheads that normally <laughs> and just have Liam just talk have about stuff? Right, anyway... Back to the, back to back. hard the hard Marxism. Now. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, like Ellie said, I'm going to be talking about an experience of trade union and workers' education from the American labour movement that's um, roughly contemporaneous with the stuff that Colin was talking about in his contribution. Um, and I think I can say with reasonable certitude that anyone with any experience of contemporary trade union education will find it quite difficult to imagine an official labour movement education course producing a musical pageant based on a Walt Whitman poem with a cast made up of 150 workers performing as actors, dancers and singers taking place at a union-owned countryside family retreat that doubled up as a summer school. Um, But that is exactly what happened at Unity House, the Pennsylvania retreat of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, the ILGWU, in 1927 under the directorship of Fania Cohen. When you said, just a point of uh, clarification, uh, when you say International Ladies Garment yeah. Workers Union, that is a union of workers who are making ladies, ladies garment. garments. It's, yeah. not a, it's not a union of women, right? It's, um, the, although the, although the, I imagine a lot of the membership yeah, the, were. The, the membership was, uh, you know, uh, predominantly, it was predominantly a, a, a uh, women worker membership, although not exclusively. And no, it doesn't mean garment workers who are ladies it means workers who are making yeah. ladies garments although obviously the workers meant that they didn't just make ladies garments but yeah so yeah the ILGWU and yeah in 1927 as part of their education program musical pageant based on a Walt Whitman poem starring exclusively uh, you know w- worker activists from the union so quite a expansive sort of cultural horizon mm-hmm. there so Fanya Cohen who is the 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 kind of director of the ILGW's education programs was a Russian Jewish immigrant to America um, and she'd been involved in the Socialist Revolutionary Party in Russia, the, the SRs, which was uh, a mainly kind of peasant-based anti-Tsarist 
Socialist Party. Her fleeing pogrom, she came to America in 1904 and joined the Socialist Party of America and, and took a job working in the garment industry in New York. And along with fellow Yiddish-speaking uh, women worker socialist activists such as Rose Schneiderman and Clara Lemlich, who some listeners uh, might be familiar with or have heard of, uh, Fania was a key leader in the strikes and organising drives of migrant, mainly women, uh, garment workers in the early 20th century. It's a period famous for immensely inspiring upheaval, including strike waves such as 1909's Uprising of the 20,000, which uh, I don't have time to really talk about now, so just Google Uprising of the 20,000 and read about that fantastic strike, uh, but also immense tragedies uh, such as the 1911 uh, Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, um, in which over a hundred uh, migrant garment workers died in a fire in their in their sweatshop workplace. Um, it's in this period that the slogan "Bread and Roses," uh, which is coined by Rose Schneiderman, first emerges to express the idea that uh, workers have the right not just to mere subsistence, but to a rich and fulfilling life. Um, and that spirit, that kind of bread and roses spirit, very much informed Fanya's approach to workers' education, of which she became her union's uh, foremost pioneer. So, in 1918, Fanya becomes the Executive Secretary of Education in the ILGWU and works to develop education programmes that aim to both intellectually and culturally enrich and empower union members. They aim to form social bonds between workers, including crucially workers of different ethnic and national backgrounds, very heavily migrant workforce that we're talking about here, to provide hands-on training as workplace organisers and union activists and officials, and often in direct alliance with figures and organisations from the far left to provide Marxian political and economic education too. So Fania's horizon is just incredibly expansive. She's talking about kind of general, te general and technical education, um, kind of direct skills training for how to be a good union activist, good workplace organizer, but then also giving people kind of you know, education in, in, in Marxian political mm. and economic so it theory. Sounds, it sounds similar to the kind of Ruskin guys, but, yeah. but actually in, in a much like more ambitious way actually by yeah, the sounds of um, it. Yeah. yeah indeed and, and uh, as we'll find out later on there, there are some kind of crossover of personnel um, in, in terms of the, this, this movement and, and, and the movement in Britain. Um, the story of workers education in the ILGWU and, and the story of Fanya Cohen um, is uh, brilliantly told in uh, Daniel Katz's 2011 book Altogether Different, uh, which I would encourage uh, all our listeners to read. Um, as well as relating these histories, it also explores how union education became a terrain of struggle over a whole number of issues. Gender oppression and women's rights, um, how a multi-ethnic, multilingual union membership should approach those kind of questions of multiculturalism and, 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 and national questions, um, political struggles as revolutionaries contested with reformists, Marxists contested with anarchists, and later Stalinists contested with anti-Stalinist socialists, uh, struggles between the bureaucracy and the rank and file within the labour movement, between militancy and conciliation, also very much played themselves out on the educational terrain in approaches to curriculum, teaching method, um, and more. Now, we haven't really got time to even scratch the surface of all of that, so what I'm going to do is just read a few short extracts from the Daniel Katz book that I mentioned, just to kind of give a sense of the spirit with which worker activists like Fania approach the question of workers' education um, in their time. So, this first extract uh, describes how Fania, working with uh, Louis Friedland, who is an English professor at the College of the City of New York, first designed a programme for union education in 1919. So this is from uh, Daniel Katz's book. Cohn and Friedland designed a two-tier system of education based on an idea Cohn first proposed to the General Executive Board of the Union three years earlier. 
they intended the program to be socially transformative. So it kind of harks back to some of the stuff Ellie was talking about a moment ago. Uh, a new form of education that would raise the consciousness of workers towards a socialist vision and cultivate future union leadership from ranks of students. Cohn and Friedland devised one program for the so-called mass of union members, which offered, quote, intellectual, cultural and recreational instruction, end quote. The second program, called the Workers' University, trained, quote, especially good material to act as officers, secretaries, leaders, shop committeemen, etc. in the trade union, end quote. The extract continues, the ILGWU also encouraged members to attend classes sponsored by other institutions, such as the Workmen's Circle and the Rand School, through schedules published in Justice, which was the union's journal. When ILGWU members attended classes in 1920, Alexander Trachtenberg taught history of the working class movement and Russian revolutionary history, and Scott Nearing taught classes on dynamic sociology, control of public opinion, and capitalism. Beginning in 1921, students who showed promise as union organisers and leaders won scholarships to the Brookwood Labour College. Uh, and that's where the extract ends. So the Brookwood Labour College mentioned just at the end that there, um, which probably we could have done this entire episode about, was a labour movement educational institution uh, run by AJ Musty, which is a name that any listeners who share our interest in uh, factional conflict in the pre-Second World War American far left... Which I imagine well, is all of you. All of, yeah, <laughs> well, you'll undoubtedly recognise that name. Um, founded in 1919, Brookwood Labour College was known as Labour's Harvard. Um, but although it was sponsored by unions and union locals, it often had a somewhat tense relationship with labour movement officialdom due to its explicit advocacy and communication in its curriculum of class struggle militancy and socialism. And the sort of direct connection between the labour college movement in America and the labour college movement in Britain is that, um, well, one of many connections is that Charles Beard, who helped found uh, Ruskin at Oxford, uh, was on Brookwood's governing board. Mm. Um, so... To, to just go back to Katz's book for, for a couple more quotes before I wrap up this section. Um, uh, Fania Cohn's approach to education in the ILGWU was underscored by an emphasis on what we might call the kind of prefigurative potential of education. The idea that it was through education that workers could learn the skills um, not only to change but ultimately to govern and reorganise the world. To, to, to quote from Katz's book again. Um, the course bulletin at the Workers' University announced, a new civilization is in the process of being built up. If the workers' movement is to be powerful in helping shape that new civilization, workers must know the underlying principles and the dominant trends of our modern life. So that's the end of the internal quote. Um, Katz's book continues, the abstracts of the 14 courses offered in 1923 to 4 show a focus on developing critical thinking skills that included logic, polemical argument and social criticism through courses in psychology and social psychology, sociology, literature and history. Cohn believed that workers and their representatives needed to understand economics and history on as sophisticated a plane as university students did. Appropriating the cult of expertise that emerged during the progressive era, the workers' university enabled workers to enabled workers themselves to become the experts. And that's that's the end of that quote there. Um, ILGW education also had a profound cultural aspect and facilitated classes where workers could explore not only their own cultural traditions through dance or song, for example, but those of the other cultures found within the union. Um, hence, workers of a variety of different backgrounds learn each other's languages and heritage. Um, Maida Springer Kemp, who was a black garment worker from Panama, who went on to be um, an extremely prominent 
labor movement activist and official um says of her best friend from work a, a jewish woman uh, she liked me and i liked her she wanted me to have a sense of enjoyment of the yiddish theater we would go to the opera i would invite them to harlem we would have this exchange of things without the union there would not have been the camaraderie there would not have been the sense of purpose the union was the instrument helping to create these bonds uh, and, and to me that's a nice kind of quotidian level expression of some of what's implied i think by the slogan bread and roses and also how um union education having a kind of cultural dynamic can can help solidify bonds of solidarity between its members um just just to wrap up then i think i've probably done this story something of an injustice by presenting it in such bite-sized form and really skating over some of the very intense political conflicts that that took place and characterized it um, i've also not talked about pins and needles which was a extremely successful Broadway review that the ILGW went on to produce That's in the fantastic. 1930s, with, with the original cast of which was made up of garment workers, uh, union activists, trained in the cultural and artistic classes offered via their um, educational institutions. Um, so I'm just going to sort of mention that now as a kind of teaser for anyone who might be interested in um, exploring that period further. Um, but despite the shockingly inadequate nature of the sketch I've just given, what I think the ILGWU's educational programmes show at their best is that it's possible for the labour movement to offer a truly universal education, one that trains workers to be activists and organisers in the workplace and in the union, but that is also intellectually and culturally expansive and aims ultimately to train us to run a radically transformed society. Um, so just to repeat in conclusion, the book I've been referring to and quoting from is Daniel Katz's Altogether Different Yiddish Socialists, Garment Workers and the Labour Roots of Multiculturalism, uh, which was very kindly gifted to me by our Labour Days researcher, Holly, uh, and which I strongly encourage all listeners to read. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, what I've got from that is that we're not doing our job properly unless uh, Dave Prentice is in a West End <laughs> smash hit by this time next year. So uh, let, let's get on with that. Earlier, we heard a bit of history about Ruskin College. Now we're going to hear from Ian Manboard, who taught international labour and trade union studies at Ruskin for a number of years, and now works in Education for Equity, the Performers' Union. Ian is talking here at an event in the summer hosted by the Ella Baker School of Transformative Organising about research he has done with former students on the impact of these courses. Sadly, the courses were recently discontinued by Ruskin Management in a move that provoked an industrial dispute with the college's UCU branch. Uh, for those that don't know me, my name's Ian. Uh, I now work for the Trade Union Equity, the Union for Actors. But for 30 years, approximately 30 years, I worked as a teacher for either individual trade unions like Unison or through colleges for other trade unions. Got a very straightforward background, having started off doing CUC basic stewards training. The last 10 years of my uh, teaching, I was at, uh, well actually I was at Ruskin College um, that um, Colin was talking about yesterday, for 17 years in total. The last 10 years I was running a master's degree in international labour and trade union studies. Equal mixtures of activists and full-time officials, always a good dose of, uh, of uh, comrades from overseas as well. And uh, I just want to talk to you a little bit about the findings, because I just think they're fascinating. Fascinating to me at least anyway, because um, I've, I've uncovered things of, about the, the, the experience of students um, over 10 years that I wasn't prepared for. Um, I'll say a little bit more about the MA and the research in a second. Um, I just want to say a bit about the background to the programme. 
Ruskin has always worked very closely with trade unions. I went there myself in the 80s, uh, having left school at 16. And um, basically the background to the BA and the MA, both in International Labour and Trade Union Studies, was uh, not long after Labour had come power to power in 97, there were ongoing discussions with a whole series of trade unions about, well, what do we do? What do we do around the crisis of trade unionism? Because we're simply not winning. Um, and it isn't just about um, the global crisis of trade unionism. We're not winning in, in this country. Anyway, cut a long story short, in 2005, 2006, the BA and the MA came into being, largely to equip activists and full-time <coughs> officials with new knowledge, particularly at a global level, of what we felt were the the causes of the crisis of trade unionism. And to give people the opportunity to reflect and think about that and to um, uh, do their own research, think about their own strategies for trade union renewal. Uh, following a series of unfortunate events in 2017, mm -hmm. uh, I and the whole team at Ruskin College were dismissed. Um, uh, Thank you very much for the support of people like Tish Gibbons and Jane Holgate for your solidarity. So, so the MA continues, uh, but not the MA, the, the MA that I was running. So what I wanted to do in this research was just basically ask, did it have any effect? I had a great time, General students had a great time, but what did it do? So I, I thought I'd just get to grips with uh, what the impact was, and I started there professional doctorate and researching work in 2011, a few years before I'd left Ruskin, because I'm really keen to have a sense of, well, what were we doing here? Um, the, um, the starting point for thinking, though, about doing the research on the MA was actually the research that Jane and Mel Sims had done on the Organising Academy um, that ended up in the book Union Voices. And the important thing about that book is it doesn't look at the, at the, the external causes of the crisis, it kind of lifts the lid on the trade union movement and says, why if we're pouring millions into you and we've got some of the most intelligent people possible employed in you, are we simply not winning? It's a great book. Um, give it a plug. I, th I think it's one of the best books on the causes of the crisis of trade unionism that's caused by trade unionism, not by the external factors of trade unionism as well. So, uh, conscious of time, just skipping ahead. 10 years worth of students, that's about 70 odd people, uh, interviewed about half of them, did an online survey. And that title, Validation, Power and Authority, that came, that came about through this approach of coding. Some people may, may be familiar with it. Well, basically what you're doing is you're sifting through the interviews and the survey. You listen to what people are saying in response to the questions, and you just come up with common themes. What are the common things that people are saying? And I think the thing that was most powerful and resonating to, for me was, that this group of men and women, principally from the UK, but some overseas, kept talking about what trade unionism had done to them in inducing a lack of confidence, a lack of capability. It was quite profound, I never expected it, because these were the kind of people who, if you're in a disciplinary, you wanted them by your side. These were the, some of the roughest, toughest trade unionists you'd ever want to meet. Yet when I sat down with them and talked to them about, why were you on the MA? And said, because I'm not sure about what I'm doing. And, and also on top of that, when you strip away <coughs> f 
further into the research as, as Coding asks you to do. It was about what tradesmen does to people, the fighting, the cultures, you know, cultures of racism, of sexism, of bureaucracy, and it was just startling. Just it's the kind of stuff that made me sit and think for hours. But I went even further because it's a pity I can't show it to you, but. About two years ago, I came across a book by Tracy Ellis called Embodied Activism. Anyway, the embodied activism element went deeper than um, validation, power and authority, because what it spoke to was men and women who'd done the MA, who by coming together, talking, researching, theorising on what they thought were the strategies for renewal, had gone back to the residual embodied Socialism and trade unionism that, that, had got them in, that had got them into trade unions actually in the first place. I think some of us forget how we started, don't we? It seems like so long ago. Mm -hmm. And you get involved in trade unionism, you might get employed in trade unionism, and you become an official. <clears throat> and there's so little research on being an official in the trade union movement, so little. And also what doesn't help is that literature that talks about the rank and file versus the bureaucracy. I know I'm a bureaucrat now, <laughs> but I am still a trade unionist and what the research did was it found out how we enable people who were ground down by their trade unionism to recover it through education. Where I've rested is in two primary findings that are called knowing and being. Some of you may remember yesterday that I'd said I found a session in the morning that talked about what it is to be human so powerful because it resonates with the findings of the research. Where I fundamentally rested is, what students have told me is that through education, they've come to know themselves better as trade unionists and <coughs> socialists. And through education, um, they've come to find, through the capacity to do research, a power that they felt that they knew they had years ago when they became trade unionists. There's another little phrase that I've kind of conjured up. I've robbed Rod, uh, from, from um, Richard Sennett's book, The Hidden Injuries of Class from the 70s. I've robbed his phrase and slightly uh, refined it. And I've called it, it's a bit of a throwaway phrase, I've called it The Hidden Injuries of Trading and Renewal. What I mean by that is, this is why I think Jane, uh, Jane Mel and Richard's book is so important on Union voices, it's about the damage that trade, being a trade union activist does to you, the harm that it does mm. to you, the battering, <coughs> the fighting, the wearing you down. Because we, <coughs> my colleague John and Tish will know, we don't do anything about looking after yourself, do we? Even though we know it's bloody hard work. And since 2010, in the UK, it's become even harder. And what the research is about is how we rescue men and women from trade unionism. Sounds a bit daft, doesn't it? <laughs> but that's, that's, what, that's what the research ended up with. And very lastly, something that Keith said yesterday and that Colin talked about as well, um, is that the, the, the ultimate proposals from the research are that trade union education has to get better at working with other movements, because it very rarely happens the Ella Baker School, that's why I'm always thanking John for the work that he does, Jane for the work that he does. John, I know you're very fed up with this, but what you're doing, funny enough, is where the research comes out at, which is movements can learn together. 
and movements can share can share the knowledge about how you produce knowledge of your activism and how you fight for solidarity and social justice. And for some reason that's very peculiar to Britain, and many of you as trade will know this, <coughs> we are fundamentally insular movements, hardly like other trade unions, let alone other movements. And we've got to be better at working with other movements in the fight for social justice. So as Ellie mentioned before the extract, that was uh, Ian Manboard uh, speaking on a panel that um, Labour Days was also involved in, which took place at the Unite headquarters over the summer and was organised by the Ella Baker School of Transformative Organising. Um, we're just going to conclude today's episode by responding briefly to some of what Ian said and then making some additional remarks of our own uh, in summary. Uh, before we do that, though, I should point out that it's just uh, me, Ellie and Liam left as we had to re-record the final part of this episode due to some technical difficulties and Ed had to leave us to go back to Sheffield. Um, we can ensure listeners that this was entirely accidental and uh, was in no way done to deliberately carve Ed out of the show. And in fact, to prove that, we're going to be reading out some remarks that he's very kindly sent us, uh, presumably from his train or from the uh, Henderson's Relish Factory in Sheffield, where I believe he lives. Yeah, so Ed very very kindly sent us a few comments. And one of the things he said is that he found Ian made some really interesting points about the way the bread and butter work of being a trade union rep can actually demoralise people. And so courses like ILTUS allows reps to take a step back while remaining an active trade unionist. And then within that, they can think more broadly about their role within uh, the movement and within society. However, the shrinking of the horizons of the trade union education movement has gone hand in hand with the shrinking of the horizons of the labour movement more generally. We no longer seem to aspire to restructure society, but merely to mitigate the worst parts of it. And in this context, of course, it makes perfect sense to concentrate TU education on bread and butter things like how to do a disciplinary. Unfortunately, this isn't politically the best way we can operate and it's certainly not the highest way we can operate. And I also think leading on from that, we should say that the TU education programme, the shrinking of those horizons, also coincides with, I think, the shrinking of horizons of how we view education in society more generally. So even when I was in university, um, the the language in which we spoke about education had completely changed and it was about what you paid your money for as a consumer and as a customer and how that would then benefit you in the job market further down the line so you know are you getting enough bang for your mm -hmm. buck as a student rather than talking about the the huge um, thing that you're embarking on when you're doing a degree and the way that you would hope that you're shifting the horizons of your world through doing a degree yeah I think that's absolutely right and Ed also made the point before he left that the dispute um, Ian talked about over the sort of abolition of or cuts to the um, ILTUS MA course at Ruskin um, in many ways mirrored some of the issues in the Ruskin strike in the early 1900s that Colin mentioned and, and that's talked about in Colin's, uh, Colin's pamphlet. And I think that um, has some resonances with the comments you were just making, Ellie, uh, both, uh, you know, in terms of how um, the... Uh, the question of education um, within the, the labour movement also has much wider resonances about the social role of education and the kind of generally socially transformative power of education and how that's something that we need to sort of uphold and defend when we're um, kind of fighting on the terrain of education um, uh, within our own movement. 
so to maybe add some of my 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 my, my own further thoughts on that, I think that emphasis on reminding ourselves. Uh, what trade union education and political education in the labour movement is actually for um, is quite central and I think in many ways that needs recon uh, reconfiguring. Um, Ed talked about the contraction of the labour movement's political and industrial horizons and I think that's a, a, a kind of key dynamic to, to understand and that contraction has seen us retreat into a kind of firefighting, uh, running to standstill type mode where um, reps are basically trained to be sort of competent individual advocates who can help people out with disciplinaries um, uh, you know, and, and sort of individual casework rather than seeing ourselves as organisers and educators and agitators for a socially transformative movement that's seeking to change the world and build power for our class. Now, you know, obviously trade union reps n n need to do all that individual casework stuff. I'm not talking that down, but I think there are ways that you can train people to do that that situates it within a much broader um, horizon. Obviously, it's harder to maintain that horizon in a context of decline and defeat, you know, shrinking union membership, lowest levels of strike since record began and all of that. Um, so we can't necessarily get back to the educational culture represented by the Plebs League or the ILGWU's programmes at Unity House that we've talked about in the episode today simply by wishing for it. But I think maintaining it as an aspiration is um, quite crucial to any potential rebuilding and reinvigoration as opposed to accepting the contraction of horizons and um, assimilating to those conditions of defeat. Um, and I actually think in general, to maybe take it out of purely being about trade unions, although I shouldn't, <laughs> I think in general, the left is, is pretty crap at education. And like you say, this is for a myriad of reasons and not least because we are very small and we are very marginalized. However, education is one of the most important things we can do. And that's not only because through it we can gain the political and strategic clarity that we need, but also because it's nourishing and it's transformative. It's really, really hard to be embattled all the time, including being at battle with your own organisation sometimes. And it's even harder when we keep losing and we're on the back foot. Um, and you know, demoralisation is real, that demoralisation is real. And without a kind of wider understanding of the world and our place inside it, it can become really hard to remember why we fight. Um, and also I think just as socialists, and I would hope nobody disagrees with this, but maybe you do, um, we want people to be well-rounded, we want them to be happy, like we want them to be fulfilled. Um, and personally, I don't think that that's possible if you're not meaningfully engaging with the, with the wider world around mm. you and with like the big issues. And actually what trade union education can do and what, um, you know, left wing education can do is it can just, it can give you access to staff and places and people and resources and ideas that maybe you would not come across in, in another spectrum of life. So yeah, I've, I think these things are, are really important. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't um, disagree with any of that necessarily, although I think perhaps in the interests of not ending the episode on a, a, a sort of overly pessimistic note, I think while it is true that our general context is quite bleak in the sense that, you know, as, as I mentioned a couple of moments ago, you know, strikes are at their lowest level since records began, trade union membership is sort of stagnating or declining, depending on which set of statistics you use, and the sort of, you know, revolutionary socialist class struggle left is an embattled minority, that's true. However, there are openings and, and revivals and, and some possibilities. So, you know, obviously there's been a something of an upheaval and a revival on the left of politics, and these discussions are taking place in a um, 
um, a, a much enlarged and, and, and somewhat reactivated Labour Party, which I think is a, is, is a source of hope. The fact that the session we were involved in co-facilitating at The World Transformed happened is, is, is a sign of that on a kind of micro level. And this debate is kind of becoming live again in, in, in the trade union movement. Um, I think Ed spoke earlier about how Colin's pamphlet that we've mentioned a couple of times uh, was a part of the, the, the kind of spark to, to reviving that debate. And I think it's definitely to be hoped that um, in the context of this sort of semi-revival and, and, and surge in the Labour Party, you know, complex and contradictory and uneven though it is, there will be opportunities for broadening out this discussion and starting to rebuild that kind of conception that you were just talking about, Ellie, and, and to kind of re-expand some of those horizons. Um, I think that's probably about it for today's uh, episode. Um, we, we, we should end on a note really of, um, well, firstly of thanks to uh, the organisers of The World Transformed and to the Ella Baker School of Transformative Organising for inviting us to participate in the panels, um, some of which have been um, excerpted in, uh, in today's episode. Thanks to Colin and Rita and Ian for their contributions. Once again, we do apologise that the audio quality on Colin's speech uh, really was pretty poor. Particular apologies, therefore, to Colin himself, because it really doesn't do him justice. And we'd encourage everyone to read um, his superb pamphlet on the Plebs League, um, which we'll link to in the episode description. And if you are someone who's involved in trade union education, whether as a kind of lay tutor running reps courses, um, an education officer for a trade union, a union learning rep, um, we're conscious that we've, we've criticised some of the educational infrastructure in the Labour movement quite a lot in this episode, but we're equally conscious that all of you, all of those people are, are, are doing a lot of really valuable work um, day to day in the Labour movement and we hope that today's episode has been something that will supplement and nourish and galvanise you um, in, in, in doing that. So, as usual, we welcome any responses. You can uh, get at us on all our, our social media platforms and we'll see you in December for what's going to be Labour Days' first ever Christmas special. So we hope you're all looking forward to that. Thank you for listening to Labour Day's podcast. As always, this has been presented by Ed Mustall, Dan Randall and Ellie Clark, but this time with a cheeky cameo from our producer Liam McNulty. Additional research was provided by Holly Smith. Find us on Facebook and Twitter and please leave us a review on iTunes.